I could ask like sort of a naive admin law question. You've never asked a naive admin question. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think that's a thing with Frank. <laughs> Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the stock market agnostic podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on February 12th, 2018. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined by my co-host, who is still mourning the death of the death panel, and is... Uh, Frank Pasquale, a law professor at University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. This week, we welcome back Nicole Huberfeld, professor of health law, ethics, and human rights at Boston University School of Public Health, and professor of law at BU School of Law. Her scholarship focuses on the cross-section of healthcare law and constitutional law with emphasis on the role of federalism and spending power in federal health programs, especially Medicaid. One of the superstar academic health lawyers of her generation, she was the very first guest on the pod, our most frequent guest, and not surprisingly, a Twill fan favorite. Welcome back, Nikki. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Ah, our pleasure. So we're going to do a deep dive into some of the new Medicaid stuff today. Now, we could spend quite a lot of time on history here, right? We could start with Queen Elizabeth, then go up to the Clinton welfare reforms, take a peek at Seema Verma's work as a consultant, particularly in Indiana, and the Obama administration rejection of work requirements. Then there's the Verma Price letter early on in the Trump administration. But I guess for brevity's sake, let's start with the very modern history and the CMS letter to state Medicaid directors in January of this year. Quote, CMS will support state efforts to test incentives that make participation in work or other community engagement a required for continued Medicaid eligibility or coverage of certain adult Medicaid beneficiaries in demonstrating demonstration projects authorized under section 1115. Such programs should be designed to promote better mental, physical, and emotional help. Such programs may also separately, I'm still quoting, be designed to help individuals and families rise out of poverty and attain independence, also in furtherance of Medicaid program objectives. So first, a, a very general question, the extent to which you read this document and what's happened subsequently as being limited to Medicaid expansion or whether it applies more generally to traditional Medicaid? That is a great question. And it is hard to say, frankly, because the terminology that the administration has been using to describe when, how, and why they will allow these kinds of so-called demonstrations to exist uh, is imprecise. You won't see the term able-bodied anywhere in the Medicaid Act or in the Affordable Care Act. That is political terminology. It sort of reminds me of when the terminology uh, partial birth abortion came into vogue. That is not medical terminology. Likewise, this is not statutory or regulatory terminology. It is instead political. Uh, so what we're seeing is that um, many states are now going to try to take a bite at this apple, some in their expansion populations and some with their existing traditional Medicaid populations. So this letter seems to have attached three new waiver types to the program or to propose them to the states I guess, or signaled openness to the states, and these being the work requirements, the lockouts, and the health literacy testing, um, all of which have attracted a great deal of ire, uh, I think, from the policy community, uh, from activists, from uh, lots of folks. And I was wondering if we could work through each of them, Nikki. Like, the first, I guess,
this being with respect to the uh, work requirement, um, I'm really interested in both the scope of the work requirement, because I, I saw there was this think piece recently that said, hey, you know, it would really help Americans if people started watching each other's neighbor's kids. And I'm wondering, could, could you do the work requirement by like babysitting for someone or doing something along those lines? Or will people sort of switch their kids? So, you know, for someone who maybe was watching their kids at one point, watches somebody else's kids and they're working for them and then they're working for them. And I don't know, maybe we can add it in with the tax uh, pass-throughs in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. But in any event, I, <laughs> I, I'm wondering in terms of all this this stuff, like like these work requirements, I mean, I saw some said that volunteering could count. So is there experience with these sorts of things in terms of what will count, what will not, how they'll determine that, or, or not really? Not really. Honestly, it's going to be up to each state. There's some indication that uh, CMS is encouraging states to look to their existing TANF, also known as welfare programs. Welfare has a specific statutory provision encouraging people to work and also to marry, by the way. And so the idea, I suppose, is to try to align the Medicaid work requirements with TANF work requirements to simplify the administration of these programs. But they do leave it up to states to decide what will count as a work requirement or community engagement, as they also put it. And so, for example, Kentucky is the first state to gain a waiver that allows work requirements, followed three weeks later by Indiana, of course. And uh, Kentucky will allow not only work, but also things like um, being a primary caregiver. So Frank, I think that probably answers your babysitters ah, upon babysitters question. Okay. Primary caregivers and people who are uh, gaining an education and uh, people who are volunteering will also, I suppose, count for this 80 hours per month requirement. But frankly, a lot of these details still need to be fleshed out. And as you guys may remember, when I was on the show for the back to school edition, I flagged that March 2017 letter from uh, then Secretary Tom Price and Seema Verma to states indicating that uh, HHS was not only interested in particularly protecting what they deemed to be the vulnerable in Medicaid, meaning the traditional Medicaid communities and not the expansion population, but also they were interested in giving states more flexibility within Medicaid. And I think that's what we see here is that they're trying to offer some broad brushstrokes, but they want states to make it up as they go along. However, interestingly, you see in the cover letter from CMS to Kentucky that CMS expects states to learn from one another. It's this horizontal federalism that I've talked about before. They expect the states to learn from one another in these demonstration projects so that not only will the states learn from one another's models, but also Verma has said that CMS will uh, perhaps streamline the approval process for states that use other states approved waiver models. So there will be no downtime to try to figure out whether these experiments work. It will simply be whether there's an approved model in place already. Got it. And just to be sure that we're grounded in the statistics, I recall some Kaiser pie chart about the people that could conceivably be affected by this stuff. And once you sort of knock out people that are like full-time in education, far too disabled to work, full-time caregivers, etc., um, it's a pretty small set of people they're going after, right? I mean, this is kind of like the crusade against uh, people who, who get food stamps or nutritional support buying lobster. It's kind of kind of analogous, isn't it? <laughs> it absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, 
proportionally will affect a small number of Medicaid beneficiaries. And as you said, you can see this on Kaiser. I've got similar pie charts in the perspective that I had come out in the New England Journal of Medicine last week. There are not a large number of people who are not working who are able to work in Medicaid. So there's a lot of heat and a lot of attention. And frankly, there's going to be a high cost to states in implementing this, but not a lot of people potentially to benefit from it if there is any benefit to be had. And and I just wanted to note that I uh, put up a blog post about this at the Law and Political Economy blog, and I was was quoting Will Davies, who calls this uh, punitive neoliberalism turning into uh, incredible neoliberalism because it has absolutely no sort of uh, rationale in terms of budget. All the ostensible budget rationale really is, is very hard to see. It really just seems to be explicitly about punishing certain groups of people. I would only amend that to say that the budget rationale is to get people to drop out of Medicaid because ah, if it. It, it's it's the paperwork factor. It's not so much that there will be so many people who aren't working that they will uh, see significant disenrollment so much as it is the factor that we've seen in other uh, programs that are poverty assistance programs where people are discouraged by paperwork requirements. Uh, they may not understand the paperwork requirements. They may not be able to fulfill paperwork requirements. And so people disenroll simply because of paperwork itself. In other words, it's the structure, not the substance that itself becomes a barrier. And so Kentucky's governor estimated that nearly 100,000 people will be disenrolled from Kentucky's Medicaid program because of these new work requirements. And it's not necessarily because they're going to be successfully working and finding private insurance through employers. Right. It's uh, it's exactly that. It's not the targeted group that these programs say they're going after. This is actually an uh, intentional collateral damage. That's right. So that's that's where the cost savings are, Frank, to go back to your point, is that people will be disenrolled. Uh, just like the CBO uh, and the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act in terms of uh, they get the green light for, I guess, $330 billion more of tax giveaways because inadvertently getting rid of the, or not inadvertently, I guess, very advertently getting rid of the mandate gets rid of a lot of people that would have otherwise used the ACA subsidies. Yeah, that's right. It's similar. And there, then there's also this sort of whatever you would call the opposite of the welcome mat effect, right? We know that children who are eligible for Medicaid are more likely to be enrolled in Medicaid if their parents are also eligible for Medicaid and otherwise they may not be enrolled. And so here what you'll have is parents disenrolling and then potentially children as well, simply because their parents don't understand necessarily that eligibility is individual in Medicaid and not family and or they simply won't want to engage with the system because it will be so off-putting. Let's play out the transaction costs piece a little bit more. There was a piece in the New York Times today describing how Kentucky, your ex-state, is intending to achieve this work requirement scrutiny using a website and people logging in with smartphones. And it's based on a program, a welfare system computer model in Kentucky called Benefind. Is that right? Is this going to work? Uh, when when did these, these people all have smartphones, do they? Like, like the hip 2.0 people all had checking accounts so they could pay their premiums? Of course they do. What do you mean? <laughs> Sorry, I got cynical there for a second. Many poor people don't have access to smartphones, don't have access to the internet, and don't have the wherewithal to worry about immediate changes in their work status and what that means for Medicaid enrollment. Uh, so to go back to your question, it appears that they will attempt to use Benefind as the gateway for keeping track of all of this information. I would like to note the irony, by the way, that it is the same politicians who dislike government interference, who are creating 
creating such extensive oversight of the hours worked by people in Medicaid. Uh, this is something that I called in a paper in 2016 with Jessica Roberts, self-reliance scrutiny. We saw this coming down the pike. And I want to uh, suggest that um, the way that we treat people in public insurance is quite different from the way that we treat people in private insurance, even though in terms of the people who qualify for uh, financing in the exchanges, they're basically the same populations. It's just that one's in open public insurance and one is in the hidden subsidies of private insurance. But anyway, they're going to try to use Benefind. Benefind was not a success when it was rolled out. It was the state's attempt to try to uh, put all of the enrollment initiatives for poverty support programs in one place. It was supposed to be simpler than Connect, which was Kentucky's health insurance exchange. And they had rollout problems. My understanding is that it works decently well now, but I don't have deep knowledge of what's going on with Benefide in this moment. All right, let's tease out the work requirement health status relationship a little bit more. Your colleague and our great friend, Wendy Mariner, had a, a piece recently, quote, the social determinants of health literature supports a correlation between employment and health status. But as we all know, correlation is not causation. Causation is more likely to go in the opposite direction. Good health enables people to work. Can you pull that apart a little bit more for me and, and what the logic is here? It appears that Administrator Verma and uh, the people working with her at CMS believe that work causes good health. That appears to be the reasoning that they're engaging in in this change in policy. Now, the reason they would need to frame it that way is that the Medicaid Act itself is for medical assistance. It is, quote, for the purpose of enabling each state to furnish medical assistance on behalf of families with dependent children, etc. So the question is, can work requirements be thought of as some kind of medical assistance? And so it appears that the logic they've come up with is that if you can show that work improves health, then perhaps you can fit work within the definition of medical assistance. The trouble with that is that it turns the research on its head. It's not that the research shows that work causes good health. There are, as you noted from Professor Mariner's paper, uh, correlations between work and good health. People who work certainly uh, in jobs that are good jobs uh, seem to have uh, better mental health. Um, and you know, we all know, whatever our income bracket, that a steady income assists in having a better mental health and um, assists in other facets of our lives. But there is no research showing that work causes good health. And in fact, the opposite, if you work in a job that is dangerous or stressful, work can cause health problems. We do know too, that there is a link between income and good health and that it is exponential. In other words, it's pretty much a direct line that the greater your income, the better your health. But it takes a while for that direct line to kick in. So in other words, a person who's working a minimum wage job 20 hours a week isn't necessarily going to instantaneously have better health. Further, we know that uh, it's not just the income. <laughs> there seem to be other factors at play, such as education. And that may be why CMS is saying one thing that we should consider as fulfilling work requirements is education. And that may be, going back to Frank's question, why a state like Kentucky is allowing people who have been locked out of Medicaid coverage due to not working or not fulfilling work requirements or not fulfilling paperwork requirements for work to take a financial or health literacy course to be able to re-enroll themselves. Uh, I guess
guess the idea there is we can we can help with health literacy and that may help to make people healthier and therefore that qualifies as medical assistance. Got it. And I wanted to talk a bit about the lockout and the literacy requirement. I think both of those are, are very interesting. And I really was glad that you mentioned earlier about the uh, transformation of TANF with respect to things like uh, using the money instead of direct aid of, for food for children to instead use that for uh, marriage courses or to encourage people to get married or what have you. And there's some really interesting continuities between that sort of invasiveness and the type of uh, invasiveness that was documented in Kara Bridges' book, uh, Poverty, of Pri- Poverty of Privacy Rights with respect to Medicaid case workers and sort of their the people that they were uh, discussing about the, the nature of their home life, etc. Um, but to get to the lockout, and, and here I'd love to connect this discussion of the lockout with uh, Virginia Eubanks's new book, Automated Inequality. Um, she's documented that in many automated enrollment systems, you know, just making one error in a 30 to 50 page application could lead to an automatic kick. You, you would just kick it back to you and say, no, you didn't qualify, et cetera, and not even explain you know, what went wrong. And I'm wondering, you know, if once you lard into the program all of these things, like the lockout, um, for people that miss one payment or the, you know, somehow miss getting in one piece of paperwork, et cetera, that it really, to get to our sort of subterranean aspect of what's really going on here, it really is a brilliant way, if you want to just knock people out of the program, to add that into a bulky or problematic um, uh, IT system and just to, to lead to mass unenrollment. I think the Kaiser Health News article about the Indiana lockout provision said that um, uh, 25,000 enrollees were dropped from the program after they failed to make payments and another 46,000 were blocked because they failed to make the initial payment. So I'm just wondering, you, is, is there good empirical work on this or, or are, are there will there at least be some best practices for state IT systems and the minutiae of processing these types of apps to, to keep the worst of that from happening? That's a great question, Frank. It, it's it's hard to say, frankly. I mean, a state that has an 1115 waiver, which is, for those who are curious, 42 USC Section 1315 of the part of the Social Security Act, they're supposed to be able to demonstrate to the Secretary of the Department of Health, of Health and Human Services that whatever project has been approved is likely to assist in promoting the objectives of Medicaid. So the law requires beyond that, that states report back to HHS and let HHS know what's working and what's not in any of their demonstration projects. But we've already seen some resistance to this. Indiana is an example. Indiana didn't want to allow a neutral study of how its uh, then unique waiver was working. And so you just mentioned that um, people get kicked out for paperwork problems. And in part two, people get kicked out because they don't even necessarily know in the first place that they have to pay a premium because that's historically not really part of Medicaid. And so uh, there are failures of information, there are technological failures, and as Nick hinted at before, there are um, failures of connection in terms of people not having access to the internet, not having cell phones to access the internet. And and I would be surprised if any state is very transparent about the nature of those failures or offers depth of understanding in those failures. Because states that have waivers like this like to report on the positive aspects of their waivers. And even if they did report problems, it's hard to say if other states will learn from those problems because we are still early in the formal reporting on 1115 waivers. It was a rule that was instituted with the ACA and most waivers last for five years. And so we don't really know how much true learning will occur from states reporting back on their demonstration projects. Given 
given the financing of expanded Medicaid, what is the practical benefit for a state to take people off their Medicaid rolls? Much cheaper. I mean, <laughs> that that one's easy. States states won't gain all of the federal funding that comes with the expansion population, but we are now in the phase-in period of states sharing that cost. Uh, so it will be cheaper for states. However, remember that even when state cost sharing in uh, the Medicaid expansion is fully phased in, the federal government pays 90% and states pay 10% on each Medicaid dollar for the newly eligible population. They're never going to have to pay a ton for the newly eligible population. And this is where I think it's really a sham, because if we're genuinely concerned about cost, we should be looking at the elderly and the disabled who account for most of the cost in Medicaid. And of course, the open secret of our entire system is that Medicaid covers long-term care and Medicare doesn't. And people are always surprised when they learn that. And that's part of what makes Medicaid universal. And that's part of why there was pushback when Medicaid was jeopardized last year during repeal and replace efforts. So can I follow up on this? Because I think what you're really illuminating here, Nikki, is a fundamental mental journalistic malpractice in reporting on this program because when we think about you know if it's since it's 90 percent from 2020 onward it's 90 percent covered by the federal government this medicaid expansion population and it's relatively easy to game out i'm sure someone has already done this um the types of costs to the states in terms of uh, there must be some way in which ultimately having people die early or getting uh, chronic disease worsening etc over time is going to um, uh, lead to higher costs for state-run or for otherwise local-run community health centers. It's going to come out of the state budget in some way. And this just reminds me of the um, cost-sharing reduction payment fiasco uh, from the Trump administration earlier, where essentially they got rid of those, but in the end, like it's really not going to save any money. It's going to cost more money because of the lawsuit and the need for the money to be paid anyway. And also the premiums go up and the government has to pay for that as well. And so what I'm just wondering here is, you know, why don't we have better health journalism that just lays this on the table and says there is no fiscal rationale? There's no sort of uh, health or quality rationale here that's at all serious. This is just a punitive measure to hurt the poor and to hurt people in the expansion population. I just don't get it. I mean, it just, it's, it's to me, it's just so frustrating and I'm sorry to rant about it, but I just can't really understand why it's being taken seriously by, say, folks at the, in the sort of technocratic or health services research areas. And I, I, because it just seems to be a lose, lose, lose. If there was such a thing as a policy never event, you know, we talk about health care never events, like leaving a sponge in someone or wrong leg amputation. This strikes me as the policy never event. It just should never happen. I, I think I have a couple of responses to that, although it might've been a rhetorical question. Um. <laughs> no, no, it's, a real, it's an open question. I, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Maybe this does save money ultimately. Maybe I'm, I'm not, I don't get the magnitude effects right or something or how the money flows. No, but, yeah. I don't think it's about money at all. I think you're right that it's not about money. It's it's about um, rejection of the principle of the Affordable Care Act, which made it so that people could get health insurance regardless of who they are. There is still a fundamental rejection of that idea. And the emblem of that idea is the expansion population in Medicaid. People believe that if you are getting health insurance, you should be working. And they don't understand that for years, and I've been saying this for 
years now, I feel like a broken record. For years, we've known that the lower income you are, the less likely you are to get health insurance as an employment benefit. And if you're a part-time worker, you're even less likely to get health insurance as an employment benefit. The link between employment and health insurance is broken for a huge portion of our population. But we still have this entrenched idea that if you're working, you get health insurance. So if you don't have health insurance, you must be a shirker, right? We can't seem to get rid of that idea. And there are polls that have been conducted that indicate people think work is okay in Medicaid. But the truth is whether or not you think work is okay in Medicaid, it's still not legal. The law doesn't allow work in Medicaid. And even if it were legal, it's still a bad idea because disenrolling someone from health insurance because they're not working is more likely to make them sick so that they can't work. It it just turns all the research on its head. And by the way, one of the studies that CMS relied on was a study conducted where the National Health Service exists so that nobody could ever lose their health insurance for not working, which further makes no sense. So the other thing that gets turned on its head is that concept in the Affordable Care Act that Medicaid is health insurance. And politically, that had to be reversed, right? Because it takes us way, way too close to what you've written about, which is universality. Once you accept that Medicaid is health insurance and Medicaid expansion is health insurance, then the only way forward is to plug the remaining gaps. So if you don't want universality, then you have to work backwards and deny that Medicaid and Medicaid expansion act as health insurance or should be seen as health insurance. No, I think that's right. And I think that there's an, an optics problem here that is linked to the fact that people who are not poor enough for Medicaid, if you will, are purchasing insurance in the exchanges, sometimes at great cost to their individual or family budgets. And they don't understand why they have to pay so much when the guy down the street has to pay so little to get Medicaid. It seems unfair. But to me, the answer to that is not that Medicaid is the problem. Medicaid is the safety net. It helps to solve the problem, right? The remainder of the problem is that private insurance is still so expensive. So that's the issue. Not to make too sudden a transition, but one thing that I we have a lot on our agenda for today, and I just wanted to be sure to get into some of the issues of potential legal challenges. So we have a great piece by Sarah Rosenbaum called Experimenting on the Health of the Poor, discussing the case of uh, Stewart versus Azar. We've had some uh, your analysis, Nikki. We've had uh, Nick Bagley's analysis. I was just wondering if you give a sense to our listeners of whether um, uh, challenges in the federal courts uh, to these uh, programs are likely to succeed, um, or uh, or first, I guess we should say, let's get on the base on the table the basis of these legal challenges, and then we can talk about their likelihood of succeeding. Sure. So right now, there's a case, as you mentioned, Stewart versus Azar, that is in the, um, the district court in uh, D.C., and there are a host of challenges in the complaint, which seeks not only to end Kentucky's Medicaid waiver specifically, but also the policy issued by CMS allowing for work and or community engagement for Medicaid beneficiaries in the first place. So in simple terms, is an Administrative Procedure Act challenge. In other words, they're saying that this federal agency doesn't have the authority to issue this policy. And then there are a whole bunch of arguments made in a bunch of different directions about why that's true. And then there's also a constitutional argument that this does not comport with Article 2's take care clause, that if you are violating the law, you are by definition not taking care that the 
the laws be faithfully executed. So that's sort of the short version of it. One of the things that I think is just so interesting in terms of the original congressional intent here versus what's happening now is, I think, isn't it the case that these waivers were supposed to originally be developed or deployed in a relatively small area and not sort of sprung on states statewide? And I was wondering if you had any background on that, like when that changed? I mean, when did the the executive seem to sort of divert from the congressional intent there in terms of the way these things are rolled out? Section 1115 of the Social Security Act is tricky in that it predates Medicaid. It's part of the Social Security Act, as I just said. And it doesn't say a lot. But the assumption is that the, the secretary's authority is to be exercised in such a fashion that whatever the state is proposing is something that can be demonstrated as promoting the objectives of the program. So HHS has always, it's not just the Obama administration, HHS has always interpreted that to mean that there has to be some improvement in Medicaid programming. That could be expanded coverage, it could be improved delivery systems, it could be, uh, you know, better metrics for quality of care or improved quality of care. Um, But it, as you said, has historically tended to be something that was a smaller project. I would say some of that changed uh, as managed care started getting rolled out in Medicaid so that there was a period of time where states were relying on Section 1115 to use managed care in the Medicaid program. Now, of course, that's not necessary. But if you had to point at one thing, that might be it because that was sort of transformational delivery of care, not not small projects, but rather large projects. Hard to pinpoint one particular moment, frankly. But you've got the gist of it in that the, the waiver can only be for a demonstration project that the state can show to the secretary will be successful in furthering the objectives of the program. In her piece, Sarah Rosenbaum points or argues that the administration is now blowing past the guardrails drawn by its predecessors, that this is an extreme use of, a, of Section 1115. But even an extreme use may well be within administrative discretion. And I wonder whether that's Nick Bagley's point that these work requirements may be legal, they may be extreme, but this is administrative discretion. I would argue that this is not administrative discretion because the law of Medicaid doesn't contemplate barriers to enrollment for people who are eligible for Medicaid. This is where I actually think the way that Medicaid was left after NFIB is particularly tricky because if you remember how the court decided on the constitutionality of the Medicaid expansion. Nothing in the ACA or the Medicaid Act was struck down, but rather HHS's authority to penalize states who refused to opt into the Medicaid expansion was limited. As written within the ACA, the expansion population is a mandatory population. And the ACA wording is still the law of the land, even though states can't be penalized for not engaging and um, enrolling the expansion population. So it if what some people call the eighth category is a mandatory population, mandatory category of eligibility, then states can't pick and choose who they will enroll from that category of people who are non-elderly, non-disabled, non-pregnant adults earning up to 138% of the federal poverty level. States can't choose to enroll some of them and not others because that's simply not how the words of the Medicaid Act itself read. So just to sort of parse out the differing legal positions, 
conclusions, which we'll all have up on the show notes. There may be one route that looks at this challenge to the, let's call it the work requirements or the conditioning access to Medicaid uh, requirements uh, letter or approach of the Trump administration. One approach may be the sort of arbitrary and capricious type of approach. Uh, perhaps you could even think of it as in the realm of State Farm, you know, in terms of there's a, there's a policy change, but it really seems to be irrational. The stated ends don't really match with the chosen means of the agency, like what we saw in State Farm versus Motor Vehicle Manufacturers Association. But I think what your argument is here, Nikki, is that we don't get to, say, the Chevron step two, where we would actually do this type of analysis of arbitrary and capricious or the reasonableness of what the agency is doing, uh, because at Chevron step one, what they're doing is clearly contradicting what the statute says, and the statute is unambiguous that they can't do what they are trying to do. Is that a good rundown or, or no? No, I think that's a good way to describe it. I mean, the language of the statute specifically says the state shall provide for all individuals, and then it goes on to describe who all individuals are. So the statute reads unambiguously. It looks as though the one silver lining here, and we are desperate for silver linings after a show like this, is to say essentially that once these uh, requirements are in place or that states are allowed to put them in place, more states may expand Medicaid, including Utah, Wyoming, North Carolina, Virginia, and Kansas. Um, And I remember seeing even uh, Ralph Northam, the uh, Democratic governor, newly elected Democratic governor, Virginia. Even he seemed to be really hoping that the ability to add work requirements would draw Republicans on board uh, to approve a Medicaid expansion in Virginia. Is your sense that this might be the sort of fig leaf or uh, face-saving addition, non-universality clause, say, that would allow for there to be a bit of a uh, detente in the uh, partisan Cold War over Medicaid expansion? Yeah, and I've predicted as much. I do think that more states will get on board with Medicaid expansion if they can have this kind of limitation on enrollment. Uh, The downside of that, of course, is that it is anathema to the very purpose of the Medicaid program. So that expansion will come at a great cost to what Medicaid is supposed to be and what it does. It stops being a health insurance safety net and starts looking more like a punitive welfare program. And that was The Week in Health Law. A big thank you to Professor Huberfell for joining us on Twitter. She is at N Huberfeld 1, N-H-U-B-E-R-F-E-L-D 1. Nikki, thanks so much. So glad to be here. Thanks, you guys. We post our show notes at twill.com. I'm at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. Frank? At Frank Pasquale on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week. Mm-hmm.